Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, strike the coach. I run strike the old. I'm recently back to civilization from a week away in the forest. So cool. Nice. Even more epic beard now? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the forest will do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Right on. All right, everybody. We have um, four listener mails that we're going to touch on as opposed to um, specifically discussing you know, a new study or science news type things. So four of these uh, mails, questions and whatnot, and then we're going to... After the break, talk about did our 2018 predictions come true? So I went back and I listened to last year's episode about this time of year, and we predicted certain things that would happen in 2018. So we're going to talk about what part of our predictions panned out and which ones we'll modify and that sort of thing. But uh, question uh, number one, and Mike, I had sent you this, I don't know, a week or so ago. With the holidays, it's hard to remember. Um But we got a question following up some comments that you had made about stretching and how stretching um, (laughs) doesn't structurally change, you know, your muscles per se uh, necessarily, and that it was mostly neural. And I and we had a listener, and I've lost I've lost that particular question, Uh, but I wanted to address it because it's a good question. It's a really good question. Mm -hmm. Is stretching more neural and you're tricking your body into being more flexible or having greater range of motion or is something physical happening? I thought you could address. Is it physical and structural or is it just neural? Why do we we stretch? Uh, In my opinion, obviously, it's going to be both. And if you talk just about static stretching just to kind of limit it, um, you're going to have both a potential structural change and you're going to have a neurologic change. So to me, if I back up even further, why I'm not a big fan of static stretching in general, excluding the you know, other associations with it, if you're using it as a cool down, your you know, breathing may change and you're in a different you know, state, things like that can be beneficial, I believe, to become more parasympathetic after training. But just static stretching alone In essence, what you're simply doing is you're taking uh, end range of motion and you're kind of waiting there for the, quote, muscle to become a little bit weaker, which to me seems like the opposite of what you would want to do. If you're trying to reduce injury and increase performance, I would actually want the muscle to be much stronger at an end range of motion. In terms of the mechanism, there's a whole bunch of different things that have been proposed. Some of the newer studies would show that the perception is probably the biggest thing that changes with kind of classic static stretching. All right, so the first study they did on this, there's been a couple of their follow-up studies on it. I don't have the authors right in front of me. But they did the old school sit and reach test, right? And they're like, hey, 
okay, can you get your you know fingers past your toes, do some warm-ups, right, the classic quote-unquote hamstrings-type stretch. And they did that, and what they did show is that, yes, there is an increased range of motion with static stretching. The catch is that it appears to be more of a change in perception because what you're doing is you're telling the person in the study to stretch until you feel, you know, a 9 out of 10 and tightness or that type of thing. Okay, do some static stretching. Okay, let's do it again. Go to that same sort of discomfort. Oh, look, you got a little bit further. But it appears that how much you can kind of tolerate or the perception of that end range of motion is now different. So because the perception is different, you're getting a little bit more uh, increased range of motion which to me seems kind of backwards of what you would really want to happen. Um, you can also get into some other uh, static stretching stuff for much longer changes. Now you're talking in minutes. You know, Some stuff has been written that maybe 5, 10, or 15 minutes. Now you may get some, some more structural changes. Maybe you add some sarcomeres to the muscle, although I, I think you're going to need some very long uh, static stretching to do that. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of that, and even more like how many people I've worked with who have quote-unquote tight hamstrings, it may not necessarily be the hamstring itself, right? So if you're standing and I put you in an anterior pelvic tilt, right, so you tilt your pelvis more forward, pretend your pelvis is a bowl and you're trying to spill some of the bowl out, that's automatically going to jack up your hamstring tension because your hamstrings are attached quote-unquote on the back side, and you've just stretched your hamstrings. But if I measure you in that position, your hamstrings are going to be very short. But if we get that to be more of a quote-unquote neutral pelvic position, oh, wow, you just got you know, 10, 20, 30 degrees of range of motion in your hamstring, even though I didn't really change your hamstring. I'm just changing that sort of attachment point. So that's more of my bias with that. And last comment is I... If you're looking for more structural changes and that kind of stuff, I think isometrics are probably going to be a little bit better, doing a full range of motion, things like that. But that gets into a whole different uh, can of worms. Right. I think part of the confusion might be acute in minutes versus chronic over many weeks, you know. Yes. Um, yeah, I remember a study ages ago, not to beat this to death, but they were looking – I think it might have been in bird wings. They were – they. They put them in a permanently stretched position. Yeah, it's Jose Antonio. Was it Jose that did that? Yeah, the chronic uh, weighted wing model. Yeah, I was thinking about, in, yeah, the in the, the um, adding sarcomeres in a sequence. Like it seemed to yep, actually. that was him. Oh, I didn't realize. I thought it was like Bill Gonier or some, somebody back in the day. Yeah. A couple other people did it too, right, where you clamp the, a bunch of weight on one of their wings and then you have them walk around their cage with that on like most of their life and then you right. sacrifice the poor little bird and look at the muscle structure. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yeah, to the point, like you said, is is that really applicable to a human being? You really, right. Unless you get a cast put on and force a muscle into an extended position, but then it's going to atrophy in other ways. I don't know. The fastest way you could see actually adding sarcomeres was uh, basically if they do a procedure where they lengthen one of your legs, right? So if you have a true leg length discrepancy that's related to the bone structure, not just your alignment, which is pretty rare, but if they go in and they lengthen that bone out, they'll see pretty rapid changes into that muscle. 
But again, that's a massive stress, and it's 24-7 all of the time, right? which is not the same as, oh, yeah, I just static stretched my hamstrings for 30 seconds. Okay, (laughs) yep. So long story short, it's probably both, right? Acutely, it's almost entirely neural, of course, but chronically, there could be some structural changes in connective tissue and whatnot. Is that fair? Yeah, I would agree with that. I I just think there's other better ways to do it. Yeah. And what we know of the research... If you're going to take the time to do super long uh, interventions, I think isometrics or other methods are going to be better. But even then, I mean, expecting someone to do like these super long isometrics of 5, 10, 15 minutes in some of the research studies is one study I think Matt Van Dyke was talking about was 20 minutes. It's just it's insane. If you've tried to do it for even more than a couple of minutes, you hate your life already. <laughs> right. You know, we may do in the future just have an episode like call it something like practical stretching that matters or something like that. Yeah, that'd be you good. Could, you, you could give us some tips. Okay. All right. Let's move on to a couple for Phil here. This one is from Matt. Hey, guys. I'm unsure if this is a quick place to send listener mail. Um, I'm a longtime listener, and I'm happy to say Iron Radio is my favorite podcast. I am a powerlifter in the 165-pound weight class, and my question is in regards to knee wraps for the squat. Uh, so you, do you guys have any tips for brands for someone who is just getting used to squatting with wraps versus someone who has been doing it for a while? So just getting used to it. Uh, is there a specific way to actually wrap the knee that may lead to better performance or better numbers? I have been using Inzer 2.5-meter wraps uh, as I am still getting used to wraps, and then in parentheses he says, "My last meet, I just squatted in sleeves." What do you think, Phil? Knee wraps, best um, way? Yeah. First off, we'll attack. Is is there a specific way? There are seven hundred and forty-seven different ways <laughs> to wrap your knees. Correct. <laughs> it's very. I mean, if you go, there's videos from Ed Cohen. There's videos from Dave Tate. There's videos from, and they all do it a little bit different. So. <laughs> Um, there are many ways to do it. The the thing to figure out is the way to, that you can do it. Um, what I would suggest is uh, find a way that you can you can comfortably wrap your knees yourself. Because one of the things, like with me, I wrap my knees myself all the way up to the meat, and then in the meat, I have somebody else do it. Um, that's one of those deals that generally I tend to I tend to enjoy making training harder than competition. So then when I get to competition, it seems like a break. So so I wrap my knees myself all the way up to, to my last squats, and then I go in the meet, and it's like, hey, I don't have to wrap myself. This is great. Um, and it makes things easier. So yeah, um, specific brands, I would start out. I don't know what kind of ends or wrap he's using, but when I have people start with wraps, it's a very entry-level wrap. Um, I think Enzer has red lines. Um Internet, right at our fingertips. So, Enzo should have some red lines, I think. Yep, they do. Enzo Power Surge red line knee wraps. They're really light. They're they're not much stiffer than, like, an ace bandage. Um, other than that, like Mark Bell's gangster wraps, they're more stretchy. They're a rebound-type wrap instead of a cast-type wrap. Um, mm-hmm. It's something you're going to want to do entry level. They're not near as painful. It'll get you used to wraps. And then as you get going along more, then it's time to move to, like, a a cast type wrap, which is uh, just like it sounds. You're pretty much casting the knee, and it feels like you can't move at all when you're standing. 
Yeah. Uh, the minute you bend your knees, they feel better. But you're going to get a lot of stiffness, a lot of support out of those, and it's not very comfortable. So it's generally not a good idea to move to the, move somebody to those right away because they, they're kind of in shock So yeah. <laughs> at what they're feeling on their knees. Um, but that's what I would do. And then just get used to them. What I, uh, like now, I honestly wish I switched to squatting with wraps sooner. Um, my knees are just shot, and they help my knees a lot. And it's not just the in the squat, but with the heavy walkouts and things. Uh, the knee doesn't want to buckle and things like that. Like mm-hmm. when the last time I hurt myself was I decided to go ahead and walk out 650 and take it for a ride in, in just sleeves. And it wasn't the squat at all. I still made the squat, but I took a, took my step back, and the knee kind of tried to buckle to the side. Um, oh, mm-hmm. And I came back and hit the, hit the squat. But ever since then, it was it was pretty sketchy for a few weeks. And then... Uh, no, I just throw wraps on, <laughs> and it doesn't. It, it it solidifies that knee joint a bit more. Um, for me, I'm old school, and they you know like knee sleeves is a new a new category in powerlifting, and I wear knee sleeves in my training for lighter weights. But uh, for me, powerlifting will kind of always be belts and wraps. You know, it's what it's been for for as long as wraps are around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then they ended the new category. But I mean, that's up to you. Uh, but start with a start with a, a stretchy light wrap. Get going with those. Once you get used to that, start stepping it up. I would wear them in your training anytime you're at eighty percent or so. You know, start getting used to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just just go from there. Figure out. Watch watch a bunch of YouTube videos. Try out the ways they wrap them, and see what fits you the best. Being a one sixty fiver, he's going to get a lot of wrap. So because I'm guessing his legs aren't huge, and that's one thing that I never understood was like, okay, the the maximum amount of length is two and a half meters. And that goes for 98-pound women and 400-pound men. Right. So, <laughs> so you see, like, Tiny Tiff, she just broke the world record, and she's, she's literally, like, 97 pounds. Ooh. A two-and-a-half-meter wrap goes around her, like, four oh. So, and then you've got, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know, J.P. Price weighing 380, and he gets the same wrap. Yeah, <laughs> and it goes around like once. <laughs> yeah, these lighter, these lighter pe- people tend to get a lot more support than us bigger people do, but uh, yeah, because they get to use the same size wrap. But that's what he'll need to look at too. What federation you're going to squat in? Uh, mm-hmm. What federation do you are, are you attached to? Yeah, because each of them has a different length uh, of wrap they allow. Yeah, so I used to wrap when I. When I went up to 405, I know that's not a lot for a power lifter, but I would always wrap just for knee protection. Like, at no point was it for a performance enhancement. I don't know if that – I understand that if they're really firm, like that cast type doesn't make – that doesn't compute with me very well. I just like the little springiness and some compression on my knees, you know, but, again, it really wasn't for performance. And that's but. the same. I mean, I think even if it's mental, you just mentally feel better, your knees. And yeah. if you do that, you move better. You know, mm-hmm. if your knees are aching, you're going to move weird. You're going to move tentatively. If you come in and your knees feel good, you're going to move right. So, mm-hmm. and then that's, I kind of wish I would have used them. I wish I would have used them sooner and maybe, maybe helped ease the, the damage to the knees a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I would always wrap externally, like think external rotation because I wouldn't want my knees to naturally buckle inward. Right in yeah. a heavy squat, so I would do what would be, I guess it'd be clockwise on my right side and counterclockwise yeah. on my left. Does that make sense, or is I just being goofy? No, generally it's it's usually wrap out, but I I wrap each knee kind of like you said because it's just easier because I'm right handed. 
Yeah. Okay, so yeah. that never bothered me. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, and the other thing you get is like, oh, for sports, well, he's not going to wear a knee wrap on the football field. Yeah, he's not going to squat 800 pounds either. That's right. <laughs> you know? So shut up. You know? <laughs> so shut up. <laughs> yeah, he's not. It's, it's training, you know. Right. So if we can keep his training safer and, you know, it's a good thing. So. Okay. Um, think of a very light wrap or even like a you know compression tights help with just the proprioceptive feeling around your your knees in that area because if you start getting pain and i don't know i just i just seen so many anecdotal stuff and i've tried even just you know compression tights which aren't doing anything for your lift there's nothing there to support it yeah but it just seems to feel a lot better and it's not because getting a spring from it it just feels different no i agree i think it feels different and it's like that for some reason even a light wrap even a knee sleeve yeah exactly. having them on, it feels better yeah and like i said i think that comes down to it's more on the mental side of things you just feel sure. more secure you feel better yeah um like i'll wear a pair of of power pants now which is a light squat brief through all my training all the way up to the meet and i can't wear them in the meet but that's okay it makes my it makes my hips feel better Mm. You know, and it doesn't bother yeah. me. I don't notice the difference in the meat, but then I'm jacked up with adrenaline and everything else. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, but I mean, if you can make training feel better and more secure and you're just mentally better with it, do it, man. Yeah. So, yeah, it's training. You got to remember that you don't need to the fallacy of you need to mimic the, the field of play is bullshit. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. It's training. It's strength training. If we get you stronger, we're doing our job. You don't need to wear exactly what you wear in the gym on the field if you're a, a multi-sport athlete or whatever. So, yeah, Especially depending on what quality you're working on. If you're working on limit strength, I mean, that's, I think, more of a preparatory base type motor quality. You're not even trying to get into faster speeds or anything like no. that. It's not not the goal. That wasn't the intent of what you were trying to do. Exactly. Now, if, yeah, if we're running, if we're out running freaking sprints or something and yeah, doing agility work, yeah, we're not going to wrap you up. So, but uh, unless we have an injury or something, we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. To me, that always made sense. We've talked about that over the years. That some kind of compression garment, you know, uh, you could. I I still call them spandex because of the eighties, you know, but yeah. Under Armour, whatever <laughs> you want. And as you get older, especially if you have smaller joints, if joint injury and you know stability is the weak link to mm-hmm. continuing to push heavier loads, then you know save your joints a little. And I don't know. Yeah. Compress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. This next one, you mentioned small lifters, and um, that's where we are with this next one. This is a follow-up from earlier, but I wanted to get your input on this, especially because Kara uh, reset some details. So mm-hmm. she says, um, Dear Iron Radio, thank you for responding to my question the other week about Feet angle in the sumo deadlift. In hindsight, I definitely could have given better context to help with a complicated issue. Um, to help get to the heart uh, of the sumo deadlift feet angle quandary, mm. I am very mm. small. Quandary. Yeah, so she's 48 kilos. So what's that, 106 okay. pounds maybe? <laughs> yeah, she's pretty small. Um, with a long torso and short legs with short femurs. Mm. Okay. Uh, I excel at the squat and have struggled to get comfortable with deadlifting and finding my ideal starting position uh, for my proportions. Uh, From the very beginning, she's been like this. My stance is not super wide, pretty standard with stacked joints. I wonder if my progress in the squat, and I I think this is the crux of it. 
I wonder if my progress in the squat, while also becoming more proficient at the big three lifts in general, has changed which muscles are activated in the sumo deadlift and changed my foot angle uh, is just a natural progression of that. The change in my foot angle is just a natural progression. So she's progressed in the squat. She's wondering, Mm -hmm. I think, because of her training status, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. is it changing which muscles are getting activated in the sumo and is that affecting her foot angle? Uh, I hope any insights you might provide can also help my fellow long-torsoed, short-femured deadlifters out there from the Great Democratic Republic of Kanukistan, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> well, she should definitely be, if I, you know, without seeing her and just taking her by word here, um, I would definitely say she needs to be a sumo deadlifter in competition. That said, I would have her spend most of her time in conventional deadlifting because she's already squatting, and they're almost the same movement, especially for somebody with such a long torso mm-hmm. and short females. She's going to be very upright. So, what we, so what's she going to be weak on? She's going to be weak on hip hinging movements. Um, and her hamstrings aren't going to get all that much work. Uh, so, and we need to strengthen her back because she has a long torso and that's going to be a weak link because it's such a long lever arm. So we'd spend a lot of time conventional deadlifting as an assistance move. Like I have a really strong sumo puller in the gym right now, Felicia, who should be pulling, she should pull over 500 to meet here in a few weeks. My God. And, but most of her time we're conventional deadlifting because she's built like this, like she just said. So yep. we spend most of our training conventional deadlifting, and then we keep in form. Uh, her lighter days, up until recently here, because we're only like four weeks out, sure. have been sumo deadlift, just to keep form in play. Um, and then we start pushing the, the sumo deadlift form. And, and now, does has the squat changed her, what muscles she's using? Depends. I haven't seen her squat. Is she a very wide squatter? Is she a more narrow-stanced Olympic-style squatter? And things like that, so... Yeah, um, with her build, I would I would probably have her squat a little bit more narrow. Um, she's built to squat if she's got really short femurs. I have several girls in the gym that are really short femurs, and they squat straight up and down like a piston. So yeah, you start going you start going in a wider stance, and now you're pitching somebody with a long torso further forward. <clears throat> so I'd get her sit her butt right down between her knees on her ankles. So um, and then it'd be a basically we're going to use those strong quads is what I'm wanting to do with somebody built like her. You know, you've got them. Let's use them. So okay. mm-hmm. we're going to do a more of Olympic style squat and sit straight up and down. So instead of trying to put put the uh, uh, on her hips, put the load on her hips. Basically, we want to bend at the knee a lot because she has short femurs and a short lever arm there. Not at the hip a bunch because she has a long torso. So um, I haven't seen your squat, so I can't tell you that. But yeah, it's very potential. And uh, honestly, your sumo and your squat should have a lot of carryover to each other. Um, which is another reason why we conventional pull a lot, because you're not doing a hip hinging move. If you're if you're if you're sumoing correctly and you have somebody to teach you to do it correctly, your torso is going to be straight up and down. You're going to drive your knees out hard and pull your crotch as close to the bar as you can. Mm-hmm. And really, the hardest thing about a setup in the sumo is, or hardest thing about the sumo lift is the setup. You know, just forcing yourself into the correct position, which most people don't do. I mean, if I were to watch, if we were to go on YouTube right now and we watch ten sumo pullers, there would be nine really bad ones and one good one. Because oh. <laughs> the most people out there are just doing it horribly, and they turn it into a wide stance conventional deadlift. I see. So, but okay, um, yeah. So yeah, she seems to understand it's a complicated issue. Kara, I would I would just suggest that if you're you really want some nuance, 
maybe you know take a trip down a strength guild if, if it's ever possible. Yeah. Uh, worst, and, worst case, you know, send me some videos. Shoot some. Yeah, video. Show me something. There you go. Yeah, oh, and there then you go. I can't, it's hard for me to say anything without seeing it. If you can shoot some videos, message me, and I'll I'll give you some insight. So that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope that at least helped a little, Kara. Yeah. She may be looking at rate of progress as a comparison, so if she's a little bit on the newer side, and she's built the squad. She's obviously going to make faster progress there, yeah, so she squad, may, yes. yeah, she may feel like her deadlift is severely lagging if she's comparing mm-hmm. it to the lift that she's structurally built to do really good at. Well, exactly, and that's just like me. At yeah. one point, I was freaking squatting five and pulling seven eighty, you know, because <laughs> I'm built a freaking deadlift. Yeah. So, and it's taken a while for my squat to catch up. So. Right. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Um, there's one more before we go to break here and talk about last year's predictions and did they come true. This is, hi, Lonnie and the guys. This is actually through Kayla, sort of our Iron Radio intern here on Twitter. Uh, I've been reviewing some of the older episodes, and you mentioned using Lucene many times. Do you have a specific form that is most effective, and could you elaborate on the benefits and effectiveness of this supplement? Thanks so much for all you guys do. Um, I'll start this off, and Mike, if you want to chime in, of course. But I've always liked just free-form, old-school leucine. I mean, I guess if you can get it as a dipeptide or something, uh, there's some studies suggest that might help with absorption. But leucine, the whole idea is muscle protein synthesis, right? The the total leucine content of a meal has been related, up to a point at least, to its anabolic effects, right? And that's that's one of the things I've worked with some supplement companies, and if they're selling like a pea protein or a plant protein, um, that's the kind of situation where maybe some additional leucine might help. I mean, that's leucine is one of the things that makes whey protein so quote-unquote good, right? It's a fast-acting protein, but it's also very leucine-rich, and therefore, you know, you get a 20-gram scoop of whey protein, and you're pretty much getting that, I don't know what that is, two and a half, three grams of leucine or whatever, sort of that um, target dose, you know, to max out your muscle protein synthesis. For a young, I'm talking about young guys now, right? Older guys might need a little bit more. Um, but, yeah, that's a general idea. It's uh, an essential amino acid, right? It's indispensable amino acid. It's a branch chain. It's one of the three branch chains, of leucine, isoleucine, and valine, right? And leucine is by far the most interesting to me. A lot of companies say, no, you need the perfect proportions of these three. I don't worry about that. I just try to make sure I get, you know, a fairly leucine-rich meal. Um, And at least that's my sort of practical thoughts. Mike, any any thoughts from you about maybe brands even or anything? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I just use old-school... You know, leucine, you can use it also as an essential amino acid uh, powder. Uh, You could use it in the form of a branch chain amino acid powder. Uh, A lot of that just depends upon cost. Uh, The trend now for supplement companies is they're all kind of switching over to essential amino acids. So you kind of have all the amino acids you need since branch chains don't provide all of the essentials. Branch chains are just leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Yeah. yeah, in terms of like dose, I agree. You know, about one to three grams. Um, I wrote about that in the NSCA PTQ journal, uh, not last month, but the issue before that. So the other part too is that you can, if you have someone who's just not consuming enough uh, protein in a specific dose, 
uh, especially smaller uh, females who you know feel full eating only like three ounces of meat or something like that. Um, I've had them add uh, leucine to that meal, mm-hmm. so the you know meat will provide essential amino acids. But if you've got a very small amount, you're probably not getting enough to cross that leucine concentration or that quote unquote threshold effect. So you can add it to those meals might be beneficial. And as you said, Lonnie, especially if I'm working with someone who is uh, a vegan who's open to using uh, leucine as a supplement, a lot of the uh, plant-based proteins, they tend to consume them in smaller amounts and may not get enough leucine. So adding that to meals can help make sure they get enough leucine to kind of trigger that event and enough essential amino acids so there's actually something there to build uh, new muscle proteins from. Yeah, you know, Toward that end, I've seen over the years bodybuilders will just pop branch chain amino acid capsules, thinking that that's going to yeah. cause muscle protein synthesis. But you know, Phil used the analogy years ago. That's like flipping on the light switch, but there's not enough current in the line to do anything. You know, so you need those other indispensable or essential amino acids for the whole process to you know begin. So that's the the risk of that. Now, having said that, I agree. When you talk about small meals, sometimes in bodybuilding, you know, you work with fitness competitors, especially, um, they're having fairly small calorie snacks and not even always with 30 grams of protein, 20 or 30 grams. So uh, there's that fascinating research that suggests, and we talked about this ages ago, but if you add leucine to as little as six grams of more or less complete protein, you can really get that sort of, and I know you hate this word, Mike, but optimal, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> effect that like that protein synthetic effect, because Correct. you've bolstered that like something that's like I imagine like a peanut butter sandwich by itself. That's not high quality protein for, as far as like muscle protein synthesis and stuff. So if you were to take a little leucine with that, arguably you'd get something similar to a scoop of whey protein. Right, and all you did was get a little bit of several hundred um, milligrams of leucine on top of the that PB and J sort of thing. So, just different ways to try to apply this, I guess. But I hope I hope that helps. Yeah, and if people want to go really far down the rabbit hole, the main researcher for human studies on that is going to be Drummond, D R U M M O N D, and then also uh, Dr. Lane Norton, along with Dr. Lehman, has done a fair amount of that work in animal models. Yeah, Lehman and um, and Nick Bird, I would point you, he's really Nick knowledgeable. Yeah, done a bunch of that through Phillips Lab with the whey protein, with uh, small amounts of that, as you mentioned, with uh, spiking it with leucine. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So there you go. I think it's an additive for um, snacks or lower calorie meals, smaller meals, just to make sure you're getting that protein synthetic effect without necessarily getting you know many hundreds of calories i guess okay having said that i think that's our questions let's go to break when we come back we're going to talk about last year's uh predictions for the strength and fitness world and whether or not we were right Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, 
we like you to keep Iron Rated in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world And create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. (laughs) 
Alrighty, folks, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we are going to look at last year's predictions. I believe it was episode 452, uh, but you can Google Iron Radio predictions and, and find it, I'm sure. Uh, what did we say? Uh, actually, I'll start with what we reviewed. So we reviewed 2017 to sort of set the stage. We'll see if this stuff is still happening. And then we made predictions for 2018. And now those predictions are going to become a review. <laughs> this is confusing. So last year, um, we had summarized 2017 by saying a few of the following things. Um, that powerlifting and bodybuilding were still niche sports. Phil said they probably always will be. Um, Phil had noticed that throughout the year of 2017 and, and bleeding into 2018, that athletic culture sort of grew. Um, a performance thing. It wasn't just about how people look, although Gen Pop is still pretty obsessed with that kind of thing, you know, exercisers and personal trainers. And um, Phil had noticed that throughout 2017 and into 2018, um, women were really embracing muscle mass and shape and big butts and that kind of stuff and strength, um, especially if they were geared toward it. You know, it just didn't make much sense that they would obsess over running and, and things like that. Uh, I had noticed that in exercise physiology classes, um, most – of, of the students are are actually women now, and that's a huge difference from you know from ten years ago. Uh, and then we also talked about like a weight class sports and how a lot of people misunderstand bodybuilding and powerlifting because you don't have to be some you know three hundred pound purple faced gassed out bodybuilder you know and you and you don't have to be some giant bearded ex con from the Ukraine in powerlifting you know such stereotypes I know but so you know there was there's a there's something for everybody. In, in those kind of strength sports. Now, the predictions that those led to for 2018, we'll see if these happened. So, Phil, I'll set this up for you. You predicted that 2018 will be, uh, quote, unquote, the year of the event. Um, and then you kind of elaborated on the kinds of events and, and whatnot. Uh, any thoughts on that? Did that happen? I'd say in many ways it did happen. I mean, we saw the Arnold get shut down for the first time ever. Because there were too many people there. Wow. So the fire, the fire department came in and shut it down and didn't let anybody else in. So, I mean, that's mm-hmm. never happened. And, like, I was there. I was like, holy crap. Yeah. And it was uh, it was turned into a one-person walks out, one-person can go in situation because um, they were max capacity. Wow. Um, and they've crammed people in there before. So I can't oh, yeah. how busy it must oh, have been. Tens <laughs> of thousands. It was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. Um, we, like, walked through the expo once and got the hell out of there. So... Um, and then all these meets now uh, coming up. There were a bunch of meets. They're giving away money. Um, you're seeing that more and more. And even coming to this next year, we got one starting off the meet I'm going to. It's ten thousand dollar giveaway. So that's that's drawing people in, man. And uh, I think it's just going to continue to roll down the pike. I mean, you've got with like record breakers, the Arnold. Well, the Arnold's in like what six countries now, I think. And hmm. um. You're seeing more and more of these things pop up. So, yeah. and just even at the local level, you're seeing bigger and better run events. And there's more meets than ever. You know, it used to be it was hard to sign up for a meet, and now there's meets damn near every weekend, and they're all full. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What about so, yeah. you personally, like Strength Guild and whatnot? You guys have some like a uh, multi-sport type of events you're involved with, and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, and we're we're gonna get back to some of that. We we skipped the. Uh, but this is the second year. Now we skipped Strength Guild Games one year. Um, 
I'll be honest with you. I got really busy with having a new kid and things like that. Yeah. And we've just traveled a lot. So, like, I'm bringing 24 lifters to this meet next month. And I had a lifter at the American Open series. And then she went to the American Open finals and uh, had Brian down in Texas. He won $4,000. And, you know, we just we traveled a lot this year instead of uh, instead of doing a lot of stuff in-house. So, yeah. It makes sense. But, and, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're everyone. We're gonna try our best not to launch into predictions for 2019. We're just gonna look at last year's stuff and did it happen. Yep. We can talk about predictions uh, for the coming year uh, later. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it did pan out fairly well, and I think it's just gonna keep growing. I mean, I think a big reason the Arnold probably sold out though was it was the the 25th anniversary, or it was one of those big ones. Not yeah. couldn't it be 50, but I think it was 25th, and. Uh, but I mean, that thing's stuff like that's getting more and more popular. So, yeah, who would have ever thought? I remember um, back in the '90s, I went to the Arnold Classic when it was just called that, and it was in Veterans Memorial Auditorium, I think. And like the yeah. e- entirety of the expo was maybe, I don't know, uh, a dozen or maybe twenty booths of just the pro bodybuilder selling clothes and supplements. You know, yeah. Uh, and how different that has become, my God, you know. It's, I haven't been there in years because I can barely tolerate it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Too people-y. But, yeah, the good, thing about, the good thing about the Arnold is it's so big you don't have to go on the expo to see a yeah. bunch of neat stuff. Like we spent most of our time out in the weightlifting, which is out in the hallway in separate little rooms. So Right, yeah. We didn't have to battle the huge crowds. I just went in there to visit friends. So the running booths. So yep. If I ever go down there, it's going to be that maybe Iron Radio is partnering with some booth or something. You know, mm-hmm. I, I need to have a reason to go down. Last time I was down there, I think I gave some kind of talk for the ISSN or something. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if there's a, a more of a pull, it is kind of neat though to go. You know, just like you said, make your rounds through the booths, see what people are selling and how times are changing. You know, but it's it's so huge. With as low key as we are, man, we could pirate it. We wouldn't even have to get a booth. We could just set up in the hallway and just go at it. <laughs> pirate. <laughs> just, <laughs> don't pay him anything. We're setting up right here. Right. Well, right. Yeah. We but, could just bring equipment to record, and the hard part is finding a place that's semi quiet in a hole yeah. somewhere to actually do any recording. But yep. outside of that, it then, would be true. Yeah. Yeah. Live on site recording would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Jody and I will be down there this year. A friend of ours, Adam Glass, is competing in the Arnold, so we're gonna head down there to watch him and kind of hang out for the weekend. So I'll be down as well. I have to cool. Uh, I have uh, I have to go every year because I had to promise Jim Wendler's wife that I'll take him out of the house and make him go to the Arnold. So <laughs> that's my job every year is to force Jim to go to the Arnold for a little bit, get him so. out of the cave. Yeah. Yep. So <clears throat> now, Phil, you had mentioned um, the the explosive growth in women too and what they're oh. seeking. Did that pan I'm, out? Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say like from 2010 to 2020 is like the decade of the woman's. They are freaking killing it mm-hmm. and it's growing massively. Um, the amount of women entering the sport is astronomical because I remember it wasn't that long ago, eight, 11 years ago, I'd go on a meet. I remember I was shocked, went into a meet and there was one girl lifting in a powerlifting meet. And now there's whole days, <laughs> you know, this whole day is women. And, 
it's yeah, it's amazing, and it's amazing how strong they're getting. Like you go to record breakers, all the records broken this year. Would, so record breakers, what they do is they give money to anybody who breaks a world record. It was all women who broke world records. Mm. Um, they're crushing it, man. It's uh, it's amazing what women are doing. And so there's money, their- right? There's money to be had for these women because these these records are gonna be broken. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and I mean, I'll be honest with you. There's money for them as sponsorship too. Big hairy dudes don't sell things. You know, so, <laughs> only the other big hairy dudes like you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, so they all these ladies get sponsorship and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's coming along amazingly well. I mean, we've got tons of women now, and we've always been women heavy, but uh, there are so many women getting interested in getting strong and kind of losing that. Uh, you know, it's still niche, but. There's a lot more women embracing being just just thick and strong, yeah. and and not a twig. But it's showing, yeah, showing what their bodies can do, not uh, you know, being 114 pounds of emaciated nothing at six foot, you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, I'd definitely say that panned out for sure. You know, the that trend I was just too. for the last ten years, if you're going to talk decade, is there's been a mass like an exodus away from women's classic bodybuilding and toward physique and fitness you know mm-hmm. figure um but there's there's like it's the opposite trend with classic bodybuilding where you'll literally only see a handful like count on one mm-hmm. hand the total number of competitors in the bodybuilding division so much so that a lot of the big events have just dropped it you know because yeah. all the women are moving and having said that though the physiques are arguably um well similarly massive and hard at the sort of fitness and and figure level you know, physique yes. level. So it's not so much that women don't care about the aesthetic stuff in general. It's just that, that the connotations of super massive giant traps, you know, kind of um, bodybuilding mass at all cost women stuff, that's really dissolved. There's just been yeah. this shift, you know. And that was the – I'd say that was bodybuilding's fault. You know, it's because of how far women's bodybuilding went. You know, if you look at – women's figure today it's what women's bodybuilding was 20 years ago right on you know yep. you know what i'm yeah. saying <laughs> you know and that's what drew them in so yeah i mean there's not many women that want to be a 230 pound dude with boobs yeah <laughs> you know, no, just, right I mean, yeah they're really not yep <sighs> now having said that i mean you could say oh well you know so there's no interest in that anymore no it's all shifted right and how we define yes. it because, yes. like you yeah. said, the physiques are actually pretty similar, yes. m- more um, streamlined, but still very muscular, very hard, but not not in the bodybuilding like mass take up more space kind of idea, you know. Yes. So, um, Mike, let's go to what you predicted. A couple of things. Um, one thing you said was that ketogenic diets will stay near the top of specialty diets in popularity. Do you think that happened? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I tried to pull a little Google search terms on that, but I suck at doing all that stuff anyway. So I don't, I don't know if I even <laughs> did it correctly, but it looks like it kind of sort of peaked towards the middle of last year and it's kind of coming down a little bit. Um, based on the questions I get, like the two biggest questions I get now still are, one, should I do a ketogenic diet? 
two, is CBD going to cure XYZ and everything else under the sun? <laughs> Those are like the two I've gotten the most in the past month. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's still pretty popular. I think it's probably going to stay that way for a while, especially now as supplement companies have uh, you know really gotten on board the different types of uh, ketogenic salts, BHB salts, things of that nature. Yeah, not so much on the esters because they, they're starting to taste a little bit better, mostly just because of cost and everything else. So it, with that pushing it, you're probably going to see it stay pretty popular because now there's a way to make more money off of it and not just selling you know diet plans and coaching and things of that nature. And right, the one gym I go to every once in a while, the Dr. Oz is on the TV in the background. And Lord. a couple of times I've seen ketogenic stuff uh, pop up on there. So it's becoming more in the say mass media now and i think it'll probably stay pretty trendy on the more bleeding edge side i see you know cyclic ketogenic diets are becoming popular again now which i mean you you guys have been around long enough you can trace that all the way back to dan duchene stuff and zampano back in the late 80s early 90s yeah di Pasquale, and i think that's probably going to blow up also and it's probably for performance athletes, I don't think it's going to end real well. I've tried using that approach off and on, and it just seems to be a debacle. Agreed. Yeah, there's a handful of outliers who can do it. And I I think people are realizing it's interesting to listen to some of the it used to be hardcore ketogenic people a couple of years ago. Now they're like, well, you know, but if you exercise, yeah, you still need carbs. So you need to do this cyclic ketogenic approach, and that'll probably stay for a while. So it's, I don't know, that's kind of my my thoughts and i think it's yeah it seems to seems to stay pretty popular okay yeah i i agree with that i think there's a lot of confusion still it's almost like the gluten free diets oh, yeah. and in that people if they go if they do it cyclically you know arguably they're going to push themselves out of a fat adapted state and that kind of thing sure. you know and yet i still see advantages you know to go it's almost like the um intermittent fasting thing except you're kind of yeah. intermittent fasting carbs only you know and i still see some advantages to it but, oh definitely but i like the concept i mean i think to me the concept which jives with metabolic flexibility which is obviously why i'm biased i i just think a lot of the people who say they're doing a ketogenic diet are probably not ketogenic and then they're adding in a few more carbs and it's working for them because they're probably not going all the way into ketosis and coming all the way out, even though they claim that they are. And that's probably better, right? So what are they doing? Just kind of an old school zigzag carb rotation type approach, which I'm a big, big fan of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned animal proteins would be labeled as more unhealthy and there'd be a shift toward plant protein popularity. Uh, did that happen? I think so. I mean, looking around in terms of new supplements, I mean, pretty much I think every supplement company for the most part has introduced some type of plant protein. And now they're using, like we talked earlier in the show, combinations of different types of plant proteins and fortified with leucine. And everybody's claiming theirs is better than the next one. And some of the more vegan experts kind of switched over to promoting uh, a plant-based diet now which there's not really a definition for that to some that's you know hardcore vegan to some that's vegetarian to some that's we'll just eat more plants I'm like okay so we're back to eating more veggies and a kind of healthy moderate <laughs> based diet again yeah 
Um, yeah, I, I do think in this past year I did get more emails from people claiming that you know meat proteins are bad. I just had two conversations last week on that, that plant proteins are far superior. And, yeah, it's... Yeah, the China study keeps getting brought up again, and so I, in my opinion, again, I'm biased, but it, it appears to have panned out that way. I think it's good that what you always say, my bias is this, right? Because yeah. we all bring certain <laughs> biases to the table. It's just very appreciated. You know, it's it's honorable, I think. I actually yeah. reviewed a, a comparison of pea protein versus whey, uh, in the, I think it was over the last year, and I wasn't, I wasn't completely convinced. It, it felt a little yeah. bit biased to me because basically the protein was the study was concluding that pea protein was actually equal or superior in some ways to whey and you're just never going to sell me on that entirely i'm sorry i don't know how you measure that or like you know cherry pick which subjects you use or whatever it is and i'm not speaking against any one group but yeah i I'm not willing to just embrace all the plant protein entirely and eschew my dairy proteins like whey and casein, you know, or meats. And I think that's where the gen pop is going to vary from our listenership, right? I don't think many weightlifters are going to complete, unless you're really set ethically on being a vegan in some way. um, I I just don't see us completely, you know, saying, no, you know, meat's bad, uh, whey is bad, Uh, mm not not our sub subculture, you know. So yeah, and I did a whole short review on that for the NSCA personal trainer quarterly uh, last month. So people if they have access to that, they can pull that up. And yeah, similar to you, it it's funny the feedback I got. My conclusion was, hey, if you want to include more plant proteins, or you have you know ethical reasons or religious reasons why, then that's great. You probably need a higher dose, and you know here's some ones that are going to be more beneficial. Getting them as a supplement probably just going to be more practical um but i didn't really say that they're going to be superior i didn't find any data to show that and yeah. even then the emails i got were some people were like no you didn't go hard enough that plant proteins are far superior and then i got the opposite of how can you say that plants are superior to proteins it's like these people even read the same article i wrote because it was mm. like Two completely different responses. So right, even reviewers will do that to you. Like, did you even read oh, what I just submitted, yeah. bro? <laughs> you know, oh, there was um, reviews on it. Was just it was, uh, yeah, good yeah. points they brought out, but it was yeah, it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, I I did a thing on protein for the Strength Conditioning Journal, and then just December, like right now, um, the ISSN um, dietary supplement, like broad sweeping dietary supplement. Uh, manuscript came out and I was part of the protein section of that. And, you know, and again, sort of reiterating a lot of these things. I think one of the big trends with proteins in general, uh, plant or animal, is there's been quite a bit of focus on older people and that concept of sort of anabolic resistance and, you know, and that kind of stuff. That's been one of the things to come down the pike, which, if anything, encourages more protein, not less. Correct. You know, so interesting stuff. Um, just to wind down, uh, there were a couple of um, predictions that I had made, and I think all of us really. One was that CRISPR gene editing will grow, uh, and that is very true. Um, I don't think it actually dominated athletics to the point that you hear a lot of like CRISPR doping yet. I think that might be a, a couple years off. Um, but WADA, right, the World Anti-Doping Agency, they do meet every year to discuss gene doping because it's real. Um, 
but uh, CRISPR being in the news a lot, that did in fact happen quite a bit. I mean, editing specific genes. Uh, there was even the stuff about the CRISPR edited babies that were um, born in China. And very controversial, right? Because here we go. You know, we're not just editing a pea plant or a, a coffee bean, but a human being. And it, it purportedly happened. And so, you know, it brings up a bunch of ethics and whatnot. Um, and then stem cells and how they will affect injury repairs. Um, I think we're going to continue to see that. But again, did that happen this past year? I've seen uh, some on that. Uh, I don't know if it grew, but ultimately long term, like to Phil's point about decade by decade, that's really going to affect things like, you know, um, vertebral disc degeneration or I'm really hoping that the stem cells develop to the point that I can get my left knee, you know, meniscal blowout somehow repaired without just removing all of it, <laughs> you know, and then working my way toward a replacement, knee replacement. I don't want to do that if I can prevent it. And then we talked about the microbiome, uh, and I think that very much happened. It, it got a lot of attention, not just for general health, but for, like, mental things. You know, there was some um, fine-tuning that maybe acetate or some of these other, you know, you can call them short-chain fatty acids or what have yeah, you, but maybe... Acid. Yeah, exactly. They, <clears throat> they are one of the mechanisms by which altered microbiome activity crosstalks with your brain. You know, and can change fogginess and mood. And we talked a little bit this past year about uh, overgrowth, you know, intestinal overgrowth of bacteria and, and that sort of thing, and how it may lead to fogginess, brain fog, um, those sorts of things. I think that did, in fact, uh, get a lot of attention, the microbiome. So, um, as far as the, the coffee studies, it's funny to listen to what I was saying before. I was talking about we are working toward presenting some research on. Uh, coffee and epinephrine and presenting it in Europe. And we, in fact, did that in, in Dublin. So that came to fruition. It looked like th there was a, a strong trend toward increased epinephrine after a lifter drinks coffee um, when you stack it with brief weight training. So there had been some stuff in the past about how if you drink coffee and caffeine and whatnot before exhaustive exercise, it, it'll really push your epi up, epinephrine, right, your adrenaline, um, but even brief training, you know, you drink two strong cups of coffee before you do that, and you do get a difference. And I even mentioned something at the time uh, that was brewing that's going to happen um, at this point is that women uh, – I was curious if women are going to respond differently to the coffee, and it looks like they are. I mean, hmm. quantitatively, it's about double as far as alertness or um, epinephrine response. It's it's, wow. it's it's quantitatively much higher epi production and alertness. Now, you might say, well, what about per kg, that big cup of coffee? Yeah, that was my question. <laughs> right. For one of our uh, – like, you know, to talk about one of our listeners who's 48 kilos, two big strong cups of coffee is much more of a dose for her than for Phil. Uh, so we co-varied for body mass, and there are still trends in, the, in those data. Hmm. And I think it's because uh, something I alluded to a year ago, which was – Women's livers, that, that whole P450 kind of cytochrome activity, yeah, it's busy breaking down estrogen in women, so it doesn't give its sole attention to the caffeine you just consumed. So they mm. actually uh, – uh, there's two papers I've seen at least about higher caffeine concentrations because, again, men's livers can focus entirely on the caffeine you just consumed to break it down more aggressively, 
and the women's livers are busy dealing with estrogen either from the pill or natural estrogen production. Uh, so there's even a mechanism by which women might be getting um, – you know, more out of a cup of coffee. It makes me kind of sad, right? It's almost like the concept of cheap buzz. Like women can drink <laughs> drink coffee and get more out of it. Because I had one slightly jealous uh, student say, well, I'm a guy. I'll just drink more. I'm like, y- yeah, you-, you can. But then you would have to drink more. So, you know, there's sort of a trade-off. That's no longer quite as cheap, is it? So some of that have kind you of... compared that yet to coffee standardized for caffeine to just like an anhydrous caffeine to see if it's the other polyphenols and things in coffee or is uh, it just no. like a caffeine dose no but that's a very good point that we're going to have to bring up that you know coffee is not just liquid caffeine right? right and and that's something that i talked about a year ago about the brew method we wanted to see which brew right. method led to the most total antioxidant capacity or the most you know um Oh, any number like of things. All those other compounds that are Yeah, developed. exactly. Which one led to the, the most uh, chlorogenic acid, caffeic acid, all those sorts of things. Okay. And that is – we are actually doing that. We are underway doing that. Nice. So that will be fun. And, of course, not to um, be remiss, the our coffee tasting project that I was talking about through Iron Radio, we had about 50 respondents. Those packets, if you signed your NDA and you got it back to Kayla, she is sending those. Um, literally in the next two weeks. So look for those, and then it'll explain a lot more um, what this brew method invention will do. And a hint for everybody, it's actually related to some of the things we discussed in this episode today. So that'll be fun. You haven't been forgotten, and those envelopes are coming out. Now, the people in Ireland or Europe or God knows where, Africa, those are going <laughs> to take longer to get to you. But... Um, the domestic ones should arrive, I'd say, in the next uh, couple of weeks for sure. Anyway, just so you know, you have been forgotten. It's a, it's going to be a fun way to learn something while you help us out with a little invention. Okay. Well, awesome. we are at we are at one hour. I'll see you guys next week. All right. All right. See ya. Hey, listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention, uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.